higher and deeper. The basic premise is this. Um, every single one of us, whether you were born in a church and you've been a Christian since uh, your first breath, or this is your first time in a church and you go, ah, I don't really know about this Jesus thing. For every single one of us, I believe that there is something higher and deeper we are being called to. I think God is calling each of us to a place of higher, each of us to a place of deeper. And so my hope over the... Ah, moments. But potentially that we would have several profound ah, hmm, moments. That's one of those. Where I hope you go home and you have to sit with an idea, you have to wrestle with an idea, you have to go, gosh, I, I think maybe there's something there. That's my desire. The basic overarching question of the series is, are we willing to go where God would lead us? No matter the circumstance. And so week one, we're taking on prayer. This is a four-week series, and it's all in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so there's four kind of movements within this, this chapter of Scripture, and we're going to take each one on its own. And this week is prayer. Prayer, I would like to uh, say, before we even say anything else, prayer is difficult. Eugene Peterson says, learning to pray is like learning a language. That it's, it's foreign to us. And here's the thing, no one remembers learning their native language. I took 30 hours of Italian in college to become fluent in order to get a degree. I remember learning that. I remember the struggle of trying to figure out how to learn someone else's language, but I have zero recollection of learning English. I just sort of had it when I had it. But it, it wasn't innate. It wasn't that being born in an English-speaking country meant I would learn English. I, I speak because I was first spoken to. Peterson would say we're, in a sense, dropped into a sea of language at birth. And depending on what sea we're dropped into, that's what comes out of our mouth. Mama, Papa, yes, mine. But he would say that all speech is answering speech. That we're speaking because we were first spoken to. This matters because the language of prayer is the same. The language of prayer, we speak because we were first spoken to. We are answering a God who first reached out to us. And so when you, when you stop to pray it isn't you initiating a conversation, it's you responding to something God has already done. The God that first reached out to us through the breath of creation, through the blood of Jesus. And so when we're talking about prayer, we have to acknowledge, A, it can be difficult, and that's okay. It's okay not to be okay, just don't stay there. And then second, what would God be challenging you to do when it comes to going higher and deeper in prayer? Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. And skip to verse 5. It says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so they may be seen by men. But truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Verse 6. You, when you pray, go to your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
He starts out by saying, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites, which is to to give us the first lesson today, which is prayer is not a show. It's not an external thing. So Jesus is saying, first, think of prayer as relational. You, you, You know the people, maybe you are the people, if it's you, I'm sorry. You know the people who have a really cool relationship, a great relationship on Facebook, but you know that they don't actually talk to each other in real life? That's an external show of one thing that isn't matched by reality behind the scenes. Another way to think about it, my uh, older sister was concerned about image in in high school. We grew up in the age pre-cell phone. And so right when she was driving, she had just gotten her license, uh, car phones had just become a thing. And she knew that the cool kids, like the really rich, cool kids, they had car phones. And this was like not, you know, cell phones today. If you're under 30, you just don't know. But, but this was like a box with a cord that was, you know, like a hose, basically, to this giant black thing. And, and this, is what, this is what people would have as a car phone. And then the cell phones was the Zach Morris cell phone, the big gray brick. But what most people don't remember is the big gray brick actually went into this other big gray, like, suitcase thing almost. And, and so it was really obvious. If you had a phone and you were in the car, you, people knew, which is exactly what she wanted. She, does, she really wanted people to think she had a car phone. So she went to a shop at the mall that sold all kinds of nonsense and tricks and toys and whatever, and she bought uh, a fake cell phone that looked real, but it was full of M&Ms. And for the next few months, she would drive to school, drive to high school every day, and she'd hold that thing up to her ear and fake talk on the phone. And when she'd get to school, she'd fake hang up and fake put it down in her car, and she'd fake go into class, I'm sure. And and the whole thing was like so desperate for someone to see that I'm righteous, that I got all this great stuff happening, that I will uh, personally humiliate myself that no one else has to know. And this, for so many of us, is is prayer. Like there's actually nothing in there, but but we want to make sure that when someone comes over, they don't think we're, we're not holy or something, so we'll pray before the meal or... Or if someone asks, you know, how's your prayer? Oh, yeah, it's, it's robust. It's good. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, and you, you throw in some language here and you do some stuff there to make everybody feel like, oh, you've probably got it going on. And yet, if you just open up the bottom of that prayer life, just Skittles come out or something. And that's all it is. And the scripture says it benefits no one, that you have your reward in full. When, when prayer is an external experience for you, you have your reward in full. For my sister, she didn't actually get anything tangible out of it, Right? Her reward was that somebody might have thought she had a a phone in her car. She didn't have any greater communication or any greater wealth. She had none of those things, but but she had a reward. The same is true of the righteous person on the street corner who's who's praying for all to see. Their reward is that somebody might think that they're holy. And if that's what we're content with, then that's what we can have. The prayer is hard. Tell me something great that comes easily. I would say that prayer is really hard, so it must be really great. But it can be discouraging. No one likes to fail, and it's easy to fail praying. I am surely not the only one who has said, I'm going to pray, and 14 seconds later was going through my grocery list. To close my eyes and try to silence my mind and silence my heart and listen is among the hardest things to do in our culture. You know that phantom buzz that you feel in your pocket? And you go to check your phone and and it didn't actually buzz, but you're pretty sure it did. 
and you, you, like your psychological wires are all screwed up and everything's, I, I can't be quiet. I can't just listen. I start going through my to-do list 10 seconds in, which makes me feel this big, which makes me say maybe I, I don't want to pray because I don't want to feel like a failure. So if I just don't do it, then I won't feel like I don't do it well. And if I don't do it and I don't do it well, then maybe other people just won't ask. I've been there. Part of the problem is, and this is going to be harsh, I'm sorry. Part of the problem is we're really shallow. Like we live generally empty lives. You're like, not me. Are you sure? Tim Keller said it this way, and it really, it really caught me. He said, we're so used to being empty that we don't recognize the emptiness as such until we start to try to pray. I thought I was, just had ADD or something, and I couldn't keep my attention. And what Keller is saying, it's not that you can't avoid distraction, is that you don't have anything of great depth going on in your life that you would even need to bring to me. You've so filled your life with emptiness and fluff that when you come to do something deeply profound, there's nothing there. And I went, oh, he's right. And so don't think of prayer as an external thing, but it's relational. It's a conversation. So if Peterson is right, then prayer is a different language than what you already speak. And so you have to ask the question, where is this language? How do I learn that? Where's the class to learn how to pray? It's called the Psalms. It's in your Bible. Psalms are the language of prayer on display for all to see. And so it's too early for an application. You wish I was done, but I'm not. If you say, I don't know if I know how to pray, or I don't even know if I, if I know this language you're talking about, here would be my challenge. Day one, open the Psalms in Psalm 1 and read the Psalm. Read this language of prayer. And maybe you write a sentence about it. Maybe you pray whatever you would normally pray. Maybe you just read it again and go, okay, cool. Day two, Psalm 2. Day three, Psalm 3. And what you will learn is that as you immerse yourself in the language of prayer, that language eventually is something you can adopt. Not so that you pray like David did in the Psalms, not so that you can take on holier language, but so that you understand the rhythms of prayer and you begin to understand innately the same way you did your first language. That it's okay to lament, it's okay to cry out, it's okay to doubt, it's okay to celebrate, it's okay not to have anything, but to just sit there and wait. And this is what we read in the Psalms. Soak deeply in God's word and then simply try. If you would uh, be honest, and you don't have to be honest with me, but if you would be honest and say, you know what, I, I don't think my prayer life is exactly what um, I would be proud to tell the world about. It's not the first thing I do when I wake up. It's not the last thing I do when I go to bed. I get, I get mealtime most of the time and, and tr- you know, like, like tragedy trial prayer. I get, I'm pretty good at that. When stuff's going wrong, I'll reach out. If you would say that, your challenge today is to try. When my four-year-old Brixton was just learning how to talk. She was just learning language. Uh, my house were pretty big on yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And she got real into yeah for a while, which wasn't real popular with me. And so I'd say, Brixton, did you, you know, did you fin- can you finish your food? Yeah. Uh, no, we're not doing that. And I'd say, say yes, sir. And before she kicked the pacifier, she had these buck teeth. And, and it kind of, it kind of messed with her language. And so she would say, Cheshire, and I'm like, that, that, is, that is not what I asked you to say. I said, yes, sir. And she goes, Cheshire. <laughs> you know what? 
okay. And so on the days went, and hey, Brixton, would you, Chester, and can you pick that up, Cheshire, and over and over, Cheshire, 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 Cheshire. And eventually she said, yes, sir. And I found that I missed when she said Cheshire. What was it about that mangled form of English that, that so felt good to me? As the father, I didn't need her to be perfect. I just needed her to try. And so many of us are so worried about being perfect in our prayer, about being perfect in our, in our holiness and our Christianity, that we, when we fail, we forget to try. Because we go, I, I don't, I don't want to be imperfect. And God says, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to try. The Father is honored by our willingness to simply attempt. And then over time, over weeks and months and years, we will arc towards perfection. But here's the problem. You will never get there this side of heaven. And so if perfection is your guide as to whether or not you will do something, then stop. Give up now and be done. Save yourself the effort. But if we're willing to see God as a father and us as the child and say, is Cheshire enough today? If God is a father like I'm a father, on any level whatsoever, he's thrilled that we're trying and progressing. What I miss in that was this imperfect, sincere heart that my child had. The reality is God is not hoping we are perfect prayers, but simply that we're prayerful people. As if knowing prayer was a challenge, Jesus gave us a way to pray. The Lord's prayer is so familiar that it often becomes, um, you know, impotent. We don't even think about it in terms of something huge and dynamic anymore. How many of you are old enough to uh, have seen Blues Brothers, the movie? I like how how a couple people raised their hand before I even said what you're old enough for. They're like, nope, old, that's me. Appreciate you people. Blues Brothers, uh, Elwood gets Jake out of prison. He takes him back to his apartment in Chicago, and, and his, his apartment has this window overlooking the, the, the L tracks, the train tracks, the elevated train that runs through Chicago. And, and the train rolls by, and everything on the wall shakes, and, and they kind of, it's like this earthquake in the apartment. And, and Jake says, what, what is that? He goes, oh, it's the, it's the L. It just, don't worry about it. It goes by so often you won't even notice it. And in a two-minute scene, it goes by a couple more times, and everything shakes. And by the end of it, we're, we're the same. We're like, oh, yeah, you don't even notice and for so many of us, the Lord's Prayer is like that, that train rumbling by right outside of our bedroom window where we go, ah, it goes, it goes by so often, you don't even have to think about it. And so what I want to do today with the rest of our time is take a fresh look at the Lord's Prayer. And so we'll do it pretty quickly. So buckle up, here we go. Our Father, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay, this is the opposite of standing on a street corner. It's a personal address. Jesus says, when you pray, pray in this way, our Father. So the first thing we see is when we pray, we come as a child. And we come to the Father in one of two ways. We either come with an agenda or with admiration and awe. I would say to discover the true nature of your relationship with God, consider what you pray in the silence of your heart. You come to God with an agenda. Got to get these things done, God. Come on. Or with admiration and awe. Is it relational or is it transactional? What do you long for? Prayer reveals so often that we don't long for God's presence as much as his stuff. My prayers do. How you pray diagnoses whether hallowed be your name is true. Whether we're coming to the Father in relationship or we're coming to a cosmic vending machine for transaction. 
my wife and I like to vacation in New York City, and when we do, we, I think we've been there enough times now that, that we've begun to almost look like we're not tourists. And native New Yorkers have a fun time with tourists because tourists are always looking at the map or they're staring at their phone or they look lost in the subway, and, and we've kind of passed that stage with great pride. And so the last couple times we were there, this, this strange thing has been happening. Um, people will approach me for directions. Well, you look like you're from here. And so someone will come up to me on the subway, and they will say, hey, does this train, will this take me here? And I'll go, no, you need to get off at 42nd and take the queue. And so I can give them that, like I know. And so they're like, oh, so glad I asked a local. And I'm going, I don't know, what's the queue? You know, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> People come up to you on the subway for one of two reasons in New York. They come up to you for directions. Hey, does this go there? Do I need to get off? Do I have to change trains? Or they come up to you for a dollar. Someone is panhandling going, can I have a dollar? Or someone is coming up going, hey, can you help me with directions? Those are the only two reasons I've ever been approached in the subway. Dollars or directions. When you think about it, those are the two most common reasons we go to God in prayer. Father, can you bless me or give me? Or Father, can you, can you help me make sense of, of which turn to take in this life? I got a big decision bless it, or I got a list of desires, provide them. And so we have to ask the hard question, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Are we coming as a stranger on the subway looking for directions or dollars? Or are we coming as a child, as a son or a daughter saying, Father, I just want to know you. And out of relationship, I, I trust that goodness will spill out. Is it a transaction or a loving embrace? And so the challenge there is if we are called higher and deeper in prayer, it starts with relationship. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Prayer is about relationship and action. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is your will and your ways. To pray God's will requires real trust. It requires that if we pray God's will, that maybe I don't know the best for the world Maybe in for myself. Like maybe God knows better for me than I know for myself. My South African pastor, uh, Pastor Willie, when he comes into America, we always take him to a meal. We take him to breakfast, take him to lunch. And all the times he's visited, he's never uh, once ordered for himself. We go to the restaurant, he's never been there. They hand him a menu, he closes it and pushes it away. And they come back and they say, well, what will you have? And he goes, he'll order for me. He knows me. He loves me. And so every time I, oh, yeah. At this point, I know, right? I'm, I'm looking for him and for me. I know what he likes. I know who he is. I know him well enough. I, relationship with him, I'm going to order for him. But he trusts me to love him, and he says, ah, I'm good. Do you ever go out to dinner and order uh, the cheap thing because someone else is paying for it? You know, you get taken out to dinner, and, and you want the steak, but you order the, the chicken instead? Because you know someone else has taken the bill and you're like, uh, I really want the steak, but I'll be courteous and I'll order the chicken. Willie gets steak and eggs every time. You know what he would order for himself if he knew I was paying? He would order the you pick two, whatever the breakfast thing is where you get two eggs and a slice of toast and you're done. Because he'd want to be respectful of me and my finances. And, and when he lets me order, same finances, he gets a T-bone with like eight eggs, one of every juice, bring, it, bring one of everything, all of the bacon and eggs, right? 
That's what he gets. It's as if we're so busy trying to get what we want that we never stop to consider that his will might be better. He gives away his will to order breakfast, and he comes out on top every single time. Why? Because he's in a depth of relationship. There's love there, and there's trust there. Are we that way with the Father? Or are we so busy trying to get what we want that we actually miss out on the goodness of his will? The implication in, in a relationship is we're saying, help me be your will. Your, your kingdom come, your will be done. If, if, if I'm in relationship with the person I'm saying that to, then there's an implication that I'm helping enact that will. People say, gosh, the world is so messed up. Have you read the news? Have you seen what's happening? Have you... What if part of God's plan to bring his kingdom was your life? What if, what if it was about getting off our knees and becoming the answer to our own prayers? God, bring justice to these people. Start with me. God, bring mercy and healing to this family. Start with me. God, bring grace to this. Start with me. Where can I be a tidal wave of love, of mercy, of grace? Ask God to show you. You've been called higher and deeper in trust and action. Give us this day our daily bread. This is about seeing a God who sustains. This part of the prayer places God in the role of provider. And this is super important because if we hold ourselves as self-sufficient, then, then all of this is lost. Daily bread and necessities, not luxuries. Most people have heard that before. What, what the prayer is asking is, God, would you sustain me? Augustine says it in Proverbs 38. He, he reformed Proverbs 38 and Augustine said, Give me neither poverty lest I resent you, nor riches lest I forget you. And if that were our prayer with regards to God providing for us, give me neither poverty lest I resent you, as if God would withhold from me, or riches lest I forget you and think that somehow I don't need you anymore. So we pray both for what we need and we thank God for what we have when we have it. Some people are in here saying, yes, but Jesus just said God knows what you need before you ask. So why why do we ask? Why make me jump through the hoop of asking when it very clearly says the Lord knows what you need before you've ever asked for it? God often waits to give a blessing until you've prayed for it. Why? Good things that we don't ask for usually are interpreted by our hearts as the fruit of our own wisdom or diligence or just because we're special. Gifts from God that are not acknowledged as such are deadly to the soul because they thicken the illusion of self-sufficiency, the idolization of self, and they lead to the overconfidence that set us up for failure. God often waits to give you what you ask for until you've asked for it. He knows you need it, and yet simply in waiting for you to pray for it, he allows your heart to see it as a response and as a gift, as opposed to him who's never prayed and still finds himself awash in material blessing or in prosperity. He can look around and he ascribes no value to God and all to his own efforts is dangerous. This is why he makes us ask. This is why he says, ask me for bread. I, I don't know everybody as well as I'd like to in this room. I don't think anyone woke up this morning and said, Lord, bring bread. Like none of us are calorie deficient yet. The prayer is saying, God, I recognize that you provide and that everything starts with the first domino you tip. 
Many of us only ask, dear God, bread. Heavenly Father, bread, more bread. Don't skip from our Father to daily bread either. In doing so, we fail to recognize the will of God or the power of God or the lordship of God. And then what we do in that sense is we create a vending machine, God. This is dangerous, but it's not dangerous because God won't still sometimes give you what you need. It's dangerous because no one ever loved a vending machine. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, which is to say we can't fix ourselves. I can't repair others. I cannot fix myself. I need your I need your forgiveness so that I can be whole. And then I can't fix them, but I, I can do my part. To say forgive us our debts is to lose our pride afresh. It's to remember a delivering God. It's to remember Jesus on the cross. It's, it's a vow then as well to be a humbling reconciler. Forgive me my debt and then open my eyes to who I need to be looking for that I can forgive, that I can reconcile with, that I can be whole with. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is true in all things, right? Deliver us, spare us. Yet, look where it's located. I think this is super important. And I'm flying, but don't miss this. Lead us not into temptation comes right after this idea of the bread. It comes right after the idea of forgiveness. It's, it's piggybacking on bread and forgiveness. I don't think this is an accident. I don't think Jesus made a mistake. This is the temptation to think I am responsible for my breath and my prosperity. The temptation to exact our own revenge rather than find forgiveness. The temptation to forget my need for grace. The temptation of poverty, lest I curse and resent God. Or the temptation of wealth to see myself as self-sufficient. God, give me bread. Sustain me today. And then, Father, help me learn to forgive others. And lead me not into temptation. Because those are the two areas of our lives where it is so easy to get off the track. Deliver me from the evil of thinking I have a hand in keeping myself alive, much less in keeping the universe afloat. See, prayer isn't just to God. Prayer is fundamentally about God. What we pray communicates what we believe. Prayer is about recognizing God and putting ourselves in our proper place and then relating in that place it's not a put down to us. It's a recognition that there are 7 billion of us on this planet and God with a word spoke us into being. And to be deeply awed by that is to be very, very small for a moment. If we've been called to something higher and deeper, prayer must be the foundation. It's about being with God and acting on behalf of God. Prayer isn't there separate from your theology in order to give you a more mystical experience. The argument is that prayer is there in order to help you experience more of your theology. Prayer exists to help you experience what you already believe. It's a holy privilege. On the cross, Jesus lost his relationship with the Father so that we could have a relationship with the Father. Jesus was forgotten so that we could be remembered. If we start there, if that's our foundation to go to God in the morning, to go to God in the middle of the day, to go, Father, I just need a moment to remember. I'm known by you and loved by you. I'm saved and secured eternally forever because you saw fit to start in on me first. Because when I didn't even know I needed a Savior, you sent your son, and I'm going to start there. And from there, watch the way that prayer unfolds. We're going to take communion in a minute. I'm going to invite Greg and the band up and 
that's our chance to remember. Sunday is an incredible day because Sunday we get to come back and be recentered and drawn back to the central precepts of our entire belief system. That you are God and I am not. You can come up. And so what we do when we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, we remember. You are God, I am not, because you spilled your blood, because you gave your body for me. I have hope again, and I have life again, and there is grace for all of my shortcomings. And it becomes this beautiful moment of remembrance that isn't in and of itself anything magical. But it can be this catalytic, dynamic moment that slingshots us into the rest of the week. That we say, God, let me, let your prayer today, maybe when you dip that bread into the cup, let your prayer be, God, let this be my life. Soaked in the knowledge that you and you alone brought me home. And let that soak my days and my weeks. Let that soak my speech, my actions. And then without fear and without failure, we lean in. Like a child leans into the Father, we lean in in prayer this week. Maybe you set an alarm on your phone that goes off every hour. Easy to do. And even if 90% of the hours you snooze that you're like, I don't have time for that right now. And if you prayed two or three different times a day when your phone started buzzing in your pocket and you said, I'm going to give it 30 seconds. God, you sustain me. It is life-changing. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things and yet is without sin. And so let us draw near with confidence the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It's okay not to be okay. Don't stay there. Jesus says, I know what it's like. I've been there. I've walked the path. Draw near. Oh, you fell short? Draw near. Oh, you don't know how to do this? Draw near. Oh, you're afraid that... Just draw near. Your struggle is known. Your weakness is familiar. Maybe it's a psalm a day. Maybe it's setting an alarm and it's once an hour. I don't know what you're going to do. But I know that as we grow immersed in the language of prayer, it will change our lives from the inside out. So the question is, are we going to just continue to hold on to what we have? To sit right where we are, to keep this spot, and say, this is just going to be good enough. Or is God calling you higher and deeper? And if he is, may our response be, I will go where you lead me, Lord. You stay with me.
as we worship during these last three songs, I'm going to give you a chance to reflect on Psalm 139 as we uh, weave some of the lyrics of that psalm uh, throughout our singing. I would encourage you just to sit back and we'll have the words on the uh, slides and just to read uh, the way that, that David prays, the things he says about who God is and the way that we can respond to them in worship. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Stay. 